Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, Very excited to have uh, today's guest back. I can't remember if this is his third or fourth time on. He is, of course, an AEI colleague, um, but he also does something at that 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 sort of academic chicken shack, uh, Johns Hopkins School for Advanced International Studies, which I should disclose my wife has a master's from. Um, and uh, anyway, uh, glad to have back Hal Brands. And he's the author of a new, well, he's the uh, uh, editor, compiler, grand strategist of a new book, uh, The New Makers of Modern Strategy from the Ancient World to the Digital Age. Uh, Hal, welcome back to The Remnant. Thanks for having me, Jonah. Good to see you again. Um, so like this book is actually, it's, it, this is a new iteration of, of a book that's been around for, that, that goes back a ways. Why don't you just sort of tell us the sort of, before we get into what is Grand Strategy and all that, just with the story of the book itself. Yeah. So this is kind of a reboot of the founding text of what you might think of as strategic studies, which is basically the, the study of how you use military means and other means to accomplish political ends. And the first volume was put together by a guy named Edward Mead Earl in 1943. And the timing was not a coincidence. Uh, this is when the United States obviously had made its way into World War II. And there was a general sense that, um, you know, not just academics, but Americans of all stripes were going to need to know more about military affairs and the pursuit of strategy because their country was going to be involved in uh, global politics on a much more systematic and large scale basis than it had been in the past. And so uh, Edward Meadorell pulled together a group of about 20 contributors um, a handful of which were actually refugees from Hitler's Europe. So they were European scholars that had gotten chased off the continent in 1939 or 1940 and ended up uh, somewhere in the United States. And they wrote uh, a collection of essays on basically um, the greatest hits in strategic and military thought. So going all the way back to Machiavelli and all the way up to 
to Hitler. That was round one. And then uh, round two came toward the end of the Cold War when Peter Prey, uh, another great scholar, uh, pulled together a somewhat larger group of writers to essentially refresh the, the volume in light of what we'd learned about strategy during the Cold War and particularly uh, in the nuclear age. And so if, if you want to think about it like this, there's sort of been one version of this book um, in every era of major conflict or competition in which the United States has been engaged since World War II. So World War II, the Cold War, and then whatever you want to call this thing that we are now wrapped up in with Russia and China today. And so the thinking behind this was to get uh, another group, another generation of scholars together to kind of reflect on what we know about strategy in light of some of the challenges that the U.S. and the democratic world currently face. Okay, this is a totally nerdy, non-foreign policy question. It's more of the fact that I grew up working and living around my mom, who was a literary agent, and I know a bit about publishing. Just kind of curious, did you guys like have to work with the literary estate of the original, or is this just a, like, hey, let's just do this thing as a sort of, like, let's let's create our own band, and it'll be a tribute band to Kiss, but we don't have to actually talk to anybody from Kiss, because we're just going to do it, right? Is there, was there was a coordination, or is it just uh, the spirit? Yeah, I mean, so it, as you know, anybody can write a book with any title, right? You can't copyright a title. And so if um, I had wanted to do this or anybody else had wanted to do a book called Makers of Modern Strategy about whatever with whomever, they, they could have done it like that. Um, this one was actually done in close cooperation with Princeton University Press. Uh, Princeton Press holds the copyright to the earlier versions of the book, and it has been you know, sort of a marquee title in their list for a long, long time. It's still very widely read at um, war colleges, for instance. And so uh, an editor at Princeton, uh, Eric Rahan, came to me and a couple of colleagues. This was a number of years ago now, five or six years ago, and basically said that Princeton had been looking for an opportunity to do a third edition. Um and so then we kind of got into discussions about what that might look like from there. Uh, my recollection is that um, one of the reasons that we decided to do uh, 45 entirely new essays for this book, as opposed to, you know, picking some that had stood the test of time from earlier volumes, is that there actually you would have run into copyright issues because the the initial... You know, it's complicated. The Institute for Advanced Study, which is the institution where Edward Reed Earl was located, is not actually part of Princeton University, even though they're located in the same place. And I think IAS actually holds the copyright to some of the earlier chapters. And so that that would have gotten messy. Okay. I, I apologize to listeners who could not care less about this, <laughs> but I just find this kind of stuff sometimes interesting. Um, all right. So like, you know, find the book however you like, but you know, we don't have to if you don't want to, but like just generally speaking, how's America doing its strategy these days? It does not feel like, uh, you know, you walk around downtown Washington, D.C., and it's not like you get this strong whiff of strategic vision coming out of every window. Um, what, what is your assessment? What is, if you could give a grade on America's strategic thinking these days, what would it be? So let me start with kind of the classic annoying historian's uh, comment, which is that uh, it never seems like you're doing particularly well in strategy in real time, right? Because in, in real time, 
we see all the things that uh, are going wrong. We see all the incoherence on a daily basis. We see the way in which a crisis pops up here or there and seems to knock us for a loop. And so if you went back and you know read the newspapers during some period, you, you pick the period when you think the United States has done best at strategy. So I'll, I'll just pick one at, you know, that I tend to like. Um, the late 1940s, right? So the early Cold War or, or the Reagan era, you know, what you, you choose, you would find that it would, most contemporary assessments would be pretty negative, right? Um, and it's just, it's just kind of hard to pull back and make sense of this stuff in real time. So we just have to keep that in mind in terms of thinking about assessing strategy in any era. I, I would say um, if we're thinking about US strategy over, say, the past five or six years, I think we're kind of in a B, B minus range. And, um, you know, that's sort of like the B, B minus range from back when grades actually mattered. But uh, because you can see both both good and bad, right? And so on, on the good side, I actually think there has been more of a bipartisan move toward a U.S. strategy for great power competition under both Trump and Biden then the political rhetoric would sometimes make you think, right? And so th- there is a fairly strong bipartisan consensus that the greatest threat the United States faces in a geopolitical sense is China, that we are also really challenged by what Russia is doing. And then we have been putting together a variety of measures to try to strengthen ourselves in that contest. And a lot of those span both administrations, right? And so if you look at sort of like the technological rivalry with China, it was the Trump administration that sort of threw down the gauntlet by kneecapping Huawei, by denying it uh, access to high-end semiconductors back in 2019 and 2020. And then the Biden administration basically built on that by devising a wider-ranging uh, set of prohibitions to prevent China from accessing high-end semiconductors, semiconductor manufacturing equipment and know-how uh, that they rolled out in 2022. And I could give you other other examples of that, but I think if you look at military realm, the technological realm, the diplomatic realm, you can identify a fair amount of progress in each of these areas. The reason I don't grade us more highly, though, is that I don't think that the urgency of U.S. strategy is up to the task. And so the the direction of travel is correct, but the speed of travel is insufficient. That That's true if you look at um, efforts to shore up the military balance in the Western Pacific ahead of whatever Xi Jinping may have in mind for the coming years vis-a-vis Taiwan. That, that's true if you think about the fact that um, you know American investors are still pouring money into Chinese companies that are helping the PLA and the CCP develop advanced AI capabilities and, and things like that. It's true if you look at kind of the desultory pace of trying to get multilateral agreement on efforts to uh, limit economic and technological engagement with with China and, and and so on and so forth and and so in general I think we're doing the right things I'm just concerned that we may not be doing them at the speed that's necessary. Um, so it's just because you mentioned AI, it's funny. I, I was talking to my wife this morning about what I should talk to you about, and she said, you know, oh, you know, definitely update on the China stuff and like, um, and and she mentioned AI, and I was like, well, you know, it's interesting. I read this article that said we're actually beating China on AI and that China's pissed off about it. And I went to go find it. And so I searched China. I just Googled China lagging us uh, AI. 
and every other article was China's beating us at AI. And then the other, you know, the, the even number ones were China's beating us at AI and the odd number ones were we're beating China at AI. So just out of curiosity, which is it? And I want a declarative, definitive, dispositive answer. So my, <laughs> my understanding is that if you think of the AI race holistically, so not in um, who's doing better in facial recognition or some other relatively narrow application of AI, but who is doing better across the range of applications, the answer is the United States is, is ahead, but not by nearly as much as you would want to be ahead. And, and so I've, I have heard people who are far more expert than I am in the field say that, uh, you know, the U.S. lead over China may be kind of in the three to six months range, which, which is more than it sounds like, you know, given that um, the pace of innovation is so fast at the moment, but, but certainly not as much as you would be comfortable with. And, and there are important areas where the Chinese seem to be doing quite well. And so this is one of the reasons, by the way, when there was that proposal, I think it was in late February, early March, after everybody started freaking out about chat GPT, Elon Musk and some other folks, uh, in part for sincere reasons and in part for self-interested reasons, said, hey, maybe we should have a pause on advanced AI development for six months. And a lot of people who are active in the national security space said, oh, my God, don't don't do that. Right. Because we might pause, but the Chinese won't. And then you're just surrendering this position of relatively narrow advantage. So so it's a tight competition, although I think arguments that sort of the Chinese have leapfrogged us are a bit premature. Yeah, I mean, the piece I remember reading and I for the life of me, I can't figure out where I found it. Maybe it was an economist piece, but it was that in part because of the censorship and, and information controls that China has, the large language model stuff is falling behind because they can't get good data. You know, you need these massive scoops of quasi reliable, you know, data. And when everything's under lock and key and it's it, a lot of it is shot through with propaganda and misinformation, um, it's you, the Chinese were, at least this was my takeaway. We're running into a big garbage in garbage out problem with at least the large language model stuff. That, that sounds entirely plausible. I mean, this is, this is a problem with, um, let's call it autocratic innovation ecosystems more broadly, right? Which is that if you don't have free flows of information, it is very difficult to generate the sort of broad-based innovation that you really need to, to thrive in geopolitical competition and economic competition. And the specific issue you mentioned is one that, um, again, people who are more expert than I am in AI have, have flagged with respect to Chinese AI development. I, I think, you know, there, there is a flip side of this, which is that if you are thinking about s simply about access to large pools of data with few privacy protections attached to them, then China's position looks better, right? Because it's got 1.4 billion people and uh, relatively few protections on how, how their data can be used, which is not to say that our protections on how data can be used are perfect by, by any means. And so there are kind of offsetting strengths and weaknesses, but certainly when you're thinking about LLMs, I would imagine that's a challenge that the that Beijing is facing. I want to just focus for two seconds on the Biden administration. Um, I was reading your Bloomberg column about um, that it's a uh, targeted, tailored competition with China that allows for trade, but pulls back on semiconductors and other high high value national security kind of traded and all the rest. Do you think that, 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 that the Biden administration's approach to all of this is 
pure, I mean, I, purely on the merits, I don't think any administration does anything ever purely on merits. I'm not trying to be like signal them out for this, but how much of this is, is, do you think, um, politics to, to an actual strategic vision, um, vis-a-vis China or, and we all want to talk about Russia in a second, but you know, let's just stick with China for a second. Well, the whole thing is shot through with politics from the beginning, but but not necessarily in kind of the partisan politics sense that we often think of it, but, but shot through with politics in the sense that there are a lot of Americans who have uh, deep economic ties with China and are reluctant to give those up, right? And that that's true of Wall Street. That's true of universities, so the sector in which I work, it's it's true of a whole range of, of enterprises. And so when you see the Commerce Department or the Treasury Department, whether it's under Trump or Biden, seeming to uh, want to go slow on some of these things that might make sense from a national security perspective, that, that is intensely political because it's reflecting the views of the constituencies that are typically close to those institutions. Just to give you one example, there is also the partisan political element here. Although I want to preface this by saying that I, I actually think China policy has been an area where there has been pretty remarkable and pretty constructive bipartisan cooperation. And so if you, if you were to go back about four months, so beginning of 2023, when Kevin McCarthy was becoming Speaker of the House and the Republican majority was coming in, there was a lot of concern in kind of the circles that I run in, national security circles, that you were going to have a Republican majority in the House that was just going to sort of demagogue the heck out of China issues, that McCarthy was going to go to Taiwan immediately because Pelosi had gone to Taiwan and we were going to be off to the races in terms of sky-high U.S.-China tensions and a poisonous political climate and so on and so forth. And for the most part, that hasn't happened. I, I think the China Select Committee, uh, run by Mike Gallagher, who we both know, has actually had a pretty responsible bipartisan approach to these issues. They've tried to focus on issues that are not super painful politically for either Democrats or Republicans. Um, they have tried not to needlessly inflame tensions. And so there was some talk at the beginning that maybe that subcommittee would physically go to Taiwan to hold a hearing. I think that would have been a really, really bad idea. And they did something uh, else instead. And then, of course, what happened was that the Biden administration cooperated more closely with the Republican Speaker of the House to manage you know, his meeting with Tsai Ing-wen than they had been able to, to do with the Democratic Speaker of the House. And so when, when Tsai came uh, to the United States, McCarthy chose to meet with her here in California, which not coincidentally is as far away from D.C. as you can get in the continental United States, as opposed to going to Taiwan. And the reason this happened is that both the administration and the Taiwanese told McCarthy, hey, if, if you pull a Pelosi, it's going to be a worse crisis than happened last time because the Chinese are going to escalate above the threshold that they set last time. And And so you know, that's not to say that um, everything is hunky-dory and Republican-Democratic relations on, on China or that this is going to be sustained as we get closer to a 2024 election in which China, I expect, will be a central issue. But but so far, I'd say the system is working, working fairly well. You, you asked, I mean, just to get back to the question that you asked, I, I think the Biden administration right now is in a fairly comfortable position politically on China. 
in the sense that the administration can say, we are taking prudent measures to protect the United States and its allies from this threat that we all perceive, but we're not going overboard with it. We're not, um, you know, turning this into sort of a vicious political issue within the United States. We're not um, trying to have all out escalation in the relationship. And for a variety of reasons, I think that that kind of makes sense for Biden politically. Now we can, we can argue about whether that is actually the right approach in policy terms. There are some areas where I certainly wish that the administration was willing to go faster and take more risk. But I think Biden kind of has the equilibrium he wants on China policy at the moment. Okay, let's take a second to hear from our sponsor. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is over now. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Don't waive your rights and speak with the IRS on your own. They are not your friends. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their clients, and they can help you secure the best deal possible. Whether you owe $10,000 or $10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you're on a fixed income, they can help finally resolve your tax burdens once and for all. So call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit TNUSA.com slash remnant. That's TNUSA.com slash remnant. Okay, so let's take a second to hear from our sponsor, Aura Frames. Longtime listeners know I'm a big fan of Aura Frames. I've gotten them as gifts. I've given them as gifts. I sent my daughter back to college with one so she could look at many, many, many pictures of her cat and I guess her parents as well. So if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life, Aura Frames are a beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. I can attest, it is very easy to use, very intuitive. You don't have to read a lot of documentation. And it's just like you load the app and it says, of what pictures do you want in your frame and you put them in your frame and you can change them and you can set the settings to whatever you want for how long the pictures stay there. It's pretty idiot proof. From grandmothers to new mothers, aunts, and even the friends in your life, every mom loves an Aura frame. Named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. Right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's AuraFrames.com. A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use the promo code REMNANT at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. All right, so let's just switch gears to to Ukraine. Um, my colleague, our former colleague, um, uh, David French, uh, was recently in Ukraine and he came back and he was talking to us on one of our other fine podcasts about his trip. And, and he was really hammering home the fact that the Russians have done a much better job of adapting to Ukraine's strategy, to, to tactics, than um, the Western press has kind of picked up on yet. Although that's... I, I've been now paying attention to it and you're seeing more and more pieces about this. Um, and 
And so he was saying that one of the reasons why Ukraine keeps escalating the asks for weaponry is that the existing defense systems aren't up to the task because the Russians have adapted. And I asked David whether he thought Biden's sort of, you have to ask me 30 times and then I'll say yes approach to all this stuff is because of that or is it because uh, he's dragging? And David's answer was, I don't know, which is the fair answer. But um, what is your sense of it? I, I, you know, we've had our, our, our colleague, um, sorry, I'm, I'm reading the, the Robert Kagan book, other K R Kagan, um, Fred, Fred, geez, I apologize to Fred in <laughs> advance. There, there are too many Kagans and Kaplan's in this space, by the way. And you're kind of guilty too, yes. with having a father who's in this business too. So like the business is lousy with Kagans and brands. <laughs> um, I, I think everybody, every fair minded person who cares about the Ukraine issue and Ukraine and, and, and is pulling for Ukraine, um, has to give Biden credit for actually backing Ukraine when it wasn't obvious that he would have and, and all of that. So you start with a pretty high grade just from that baseline. But I'm getting pretty exhausted with the, no, they don't need F-16s. No, they don't need HIMARS. No, they don't need Patriots. But then you wait long enough and, well, yeah, we're going to give them to them or we're going to allow them to get them and all that kind of stuff. What is, what is your view on that pattern and what it reflects about the Biden administration? So first off, um, the point that David made about Russian adaptation is exactly right. There's a narrative that took hold from kind of the earliest days of the war that the Russian military is hapless and stupid and can't get anything right. And that has persisted even as evidence has started to stack up to the contrary. So just to give one example, you don't hear as much about HIMARS destroying Russian ammo dumps and command posts and logistics nodes as you did back in the summer of 2022, because the Russians have learned how to deal with that, right? And so they set up decoys, they don't concentrate in the same way, and they pull things farther back. And there's a whole list of examples you can give, but that that's um, certain, certainly uh, an illustrative one. I think, you know, in terms of the the Biden pattern of support for Ukraine, there, there are two things worth keeping in mind. The first is that um, there is a night and day difference between what the United States has done this time around and what it did in response to previous Russian invasions of Ukraine, of which there were two in 2014 and in 2015. And so as, as you remember well, Joan, I mean, back then, uh, we refused to sell the Ukrainians weapons out of fear that helping them defend their territory would be escalatory, right? And and so we live in a different world now. And as as you say, I think Biden gets a fair amount of credit uh, for that. I think there's um, a couple of things going on with respect to kind of the no, 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 okay, yes approach to certain capabilities. One is the fear of escalation. Um, and so, you know, we heard a lot of talk about potential, Rus- potential Russian nuclear escalation when the Russian army was sort of on the verge of melting down in the field last September. And we've heard less since then. But I think I think the administration is rightly wrongly, very conscious of the fact that uh, the risk, the risk remains and the risk will perhaps grow the more successful Ukraine is on the battlefield. And so that that has always acted as a break on the type of capabilities that the U.S. will provide Ukraine, um, particularly when we're talking about capabilities that can be used potentially to reach into Russia itself. Um, the other thing I think that's going on is that 
the administration had a particular theory of the case about how this war was going to end, which I never quite understood. And I'm not sure if anybody actually believed it, but the theory of the case went like this. The Ukrainians had taken back a bunch of territory toward the end of 2022. In 2023, what was going to happen is the Russians would do an offensive. It wouldn't go anywhere. The Ukrainians would do an offensive, which would probably take back some ground. Both sides would be really, really tired at that point, and they would get into a negotiation, and the war would either ramp down or come to an end at some point this year. Um, Again, I don't know why anybody would have thought that was actually the case. Vladimir Putin has given absolutely no indication that sort of one more Ukrainian offensive is going to do it in terms of convincing him to throw in the towel. The Ukrainians have been very clear that they want all of their territory, including Crimea, back. And the idea that Zelensky, who has sort of staked his political future on this, is going to walk back from that prior to uh, Ukrainian presidential elections that may or may not be held early next year, I I think is also somewhat um, illusory. And so what, what has happened more recently is I think the administration has come off of that theory a little bit more. And so this is why the administration has become gradually more willing to provide things it had previously been reluctant to provide, whether that was um, Abrams tanks, where we had the announcement back in, I think, January, it was that the U.S. was going to deliver some toward the end of this year, or F-16s, um, which will probably come from European countries, but you got to have U.S. permission to do that because they're realizing that the war is going to go on beyond this year, unfortunately barring some surprising uh, Ukrainian breakthrough in the current or the coming offensive. And so they're trying to signal a degree of longer term support for Ukraine as a way of messaging Putin, hey, don't think you can just wait us out on on this. Um, There are some people who who believe that if the United States had just kind of uh, thrown caution to the wind and given the Ukrainians everything they'd asked for earlier in the fighting, the Ukrainians might have been able to take advantage of this moment of Russian weakness in the second half of 2022 and liberate all their territory. Maybe. I don't know. I mean, the Ukrainians were sort of running short on on forces. They were going to have to pause at, at any rate after they took uh, the area around Kharkiv and then Kherson in the fall. But but I do think there is you know certainly reason to ask whether we have gotten maximum bang um, out of our support for Ukraine because it has come in these relatively uh, deliberately paced out increments. Let's stop talking about American strategy because I can talk about Ukraine strategy. I am utterly and wholly unconvinced by like peace is better than war, but as um as my friend Kevin Williamson was saying on this thing I did with him last night, yeah, it's it was Kissinger makes this point that like if if you signal that your highest goal among everything is peace, then it just it invites war because people know that they can just win concessions out of you and then you'll beg for peace every time and um. It seems to me that that I can understand a strategic pause for Ukraine, given facts on the ground about trying to take Crimea back. But long term, I don't see how Ukraine can really survive without taking Crimea back. If you take as it a as a not a hundred percent certain, but as as the most plausible assumption, which is that 
any strategic pause on the part of the Russians is just to catch their breath and then they're going to come back. And I don't know how Ukraine can assume anything else. Um, so certainly so long as Putin's alive. So, you know, what do you think facts are stubborn things and who knows how the war actually goes? But five, 10 years from now, like, what do you think the strategic posture of Ukraine needs to be vis-a-vis Russia, assuming that Putin or his replacement don't really fundamentally change their vision about what they want, um, you know, for greater Russia? I I think this is a big challenge because I I think there are going to be two pieces of this that are really important, regardless of what the disposition is of Crimea and other territories at the end of this war. So let's just stipulate as kind of a going in assumption that Ukraine gets back enough of its coastline so that it is an economically viable state. Um, regardless of whether it has Crimea, although I, I basically accept your premise that if there's a state of simmering hostility, having a Russian occupied Crimea is a real problem for Ukraine. I think in order to kind of sustain itself in that situation, Ukraine needs two things from a defense perspective. One is it's got to be armed to the teeth, right? And and so it has to have extremely robust sovereign defense capabilities so that the Russians know that if they try to run a replay of February 2022, they're going to get stuffed again. And Ukraine is not totally dependent on the next infusion of munitions and, and arms from the West to defend itself. So, so think, um, like, look at what Poland is doing right now, where they're basically blowing the doors off of military spending. They're going to get up to something close to 5% of GDP spending on on defense, develop very formidable capabilities, you're going to be looking at something similar for Ukraine on an ongoing basis. That's a challenge, though, because um, Ukraine's economy is just in tatters, right? It's, it's rubble at this point. And Ukraine is going to be an economic ward of the international community for a long time to come, unfortunately, which means that the cost of maintaining that sort of military is going to be very high and very painful for that sort of for that sort of state. So that's that's thing one. I think thing two has to be some sort of security backstop for Ukraine in the form of either guarantees or a very tight defense relationship with other countries. And so sort of at the most ambitious end, there is Ukrainian membership in NATO. Um, an idea that has gotten more traction than I might have guessed uh, it would have a year or so ago. But I think President Biden is still against it. Um, I'm, I'm sure you know Donald Trump is against it if he becomes American America's president again in 2025. And it's not clear to me that you could get consensus among the NATO members on, on bringing Ukraine in. And so if that's not viable, then then what is the relationship? And I think it's some combination of a special defense relationship with the United States. And so the the model that sometimes has been talked about is sort of the Israeli model, right? Where you have, um, uh, you know, a memorandum of understanding that commits to provide Ukraine with some degree of capabilities to give it um, a defensive capability vis-a-vis its neighbors and has some set of assurances short of an actual treaty alliance. And then probably that combined with very close relationships, if not an outright alliance with um, a number of Eastern European countries um, who feel the threat from Russia very acutely, 
and then maybe countries like the United Kingdom as, as well. So I think it's going to be a little bit of a mishmash when it comes to the second factor, which is sort of the web of Ukrainian relationships with the West. But you're going to need both of those things so that you convince Putin that he won't be able to win quickly in any war with Ukraine in the future. And that if he picks a fight with Ukraine, he is picking a fight with a larger set of countries that are very committed to Ukraine's defense. Broadening this out a bit. I, 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 I'm a, I'm a foe of teleology, right? So I, I, I don't think things are guaranteed or anything like that. Um, you know, I wrote a whole book about how Western liberal democratic capitalism was basically an accident, you know? So like, I'm, 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 uh, I, I don't believe in destiny per se in all these kinds of things. So I'm not talking about that, but George Kennan, who, you know, I'm sure you have several tattoos quoting him. Uh, <laughs> it's sort of required in your line of work, but no, I mean, like, uh, you know, the, 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 the long telegram, the X article, whatever we're supposed to call it, you know, the, this idea of the sort of sources of Soviet conduct, I've been reading the, um, Orlando Figus's book, the story of Russia. And, um, it's, remarkable to me how much continuity there is. I mean, if you, particularly when you think about the fact that the sort of the, the Soviet union were supposed, the Bolsheviks were supposed to be the new Jacobins starting over at year zero, blowing up churches. They're, they're redoing everything. Um, fresh start, you know, all that. And yet Stalin ends up falling back into some pretty consistent patterns uh, going back the previous thousand years, Putin, creature of the Soviet Union, nostalgic for it. He clearly does not see the sharp distinctions between czarist Russia and the Soviet Union that pure theoreticians would. Let's put it that way. Um, how much do you, how much stock do you put it? I, I, I don't think this sort of democracy, demography and culture is destiny stuff is equally true or untrue for every country. I think it's sort of more true for some civilizations than others. Um, but um, how much stock in, in strategic thinking, is there a formula for how to think about this? Is it, it just simply going back to what, um, you know, Seymour Martin Lipset used to call history, the mother of all social sciences. Is it really just, just trying to learn history and make rational conclusion, you know, conclusions or deductions from it? Um, how do you think about that kind of stuff? So the case of Russia is a good one to bring up because, you know, the more we see of Putin and the more we hear him talk about the Soviet Union as like a pretty good thing and it's a shame that it went away. And the more we hear him compare himself to Peter the Great uh, and other uh, sort of legendary Russian rulers or infamous Russian rulers, um, the more it becomes clear that there are these powerful patterns of continuity um, across time in, in Russian history and, and in history more broadly, right? And so if, if you're thinking about kind of the things that make Russian foreign policy go, there is this longstanding idea, uh, Stephen Kotkin, the great historian of, of the Soviet Union and Russia, has written about this idea that Russia is a providential power, right? It, it has a God-given mission to influence the world in positive ways that persists, you know, from Tsarist Russia in a different form in the Soviet Union persists under Putin today. Um, there is the geographic factor. It, it's a country with long, insecure land borders. And so how do you seek security if you're that sort of country? Well, you, you expand, right? You try to give yourself 
as big a buffer as possible. That That's certainly present throughout the eras in Russian and Soviet history. And of course, with a brief exception during the 1990s, it's, it's an autocratic state that often has an uncomfortable existence with the major liberal powers of, of its era, whether, you know, that was Great Britain in the 19th century, the late, particularly the later 19th century, or the United States more, more recently. And so you, you can learn a lot. You can do a lot of predictive work, to get back to your broader question, simply by looking at these broad swaths of Russian history, these broad trends, and then kind of mapping them on to what we see in Putin's foreign policy today. But, you know, Putin is also a very good example himself of, I guess you could say, like the limits of kind of thinking about these broad issues and how they, you know, structural issues, basically, and how they influence decision making, because so much of this is wrapped up in his personality. And I'll give you just two, two examples of this. The one that's most famous, of course, is that Putin was kind of present at the destruction of the Stalinist empire. He was a mid-level KGB officer stationed in Dresden uh, in East Germany in 1989 when the wall came down. And that experience was searing for him and really shaped his view of what Russia slash the Soviet Union had been, what it had lost, and what it should try to become again. But then the other issue, which is, I mean, it, it would almost be funny if it weren't so tragic, is a lot of what's happening right now has to do with the way that Putin spent his COVID isolation, right? And so this guy is visibly terrified of COVID, which is why he sits at these cartoonishly long tables with his advisors or with visiting dignitaries. And so as best we know, he spent you know much of 2020 and 2021 in virtual isolation apparently doing, you know, research in the old Russian and Soviet archives so he could write this goofy but chilling essay in 2021 on the historical unity of Russians and Ukrainians, basically arguing that Ukraine had never had a meaningful uh, existence outside of a union with the Russian state. And so there are these weird idiosyncratic factors that, that come into play. And so you might be able to get a fair amount of sort of predictive mileage out of looking at the broad patterns in Russian past. But if you want to know like why Putin decided to do this at this moment, much more idiosyncratic factors start to come into play. I'm with you, but I mean, part of my point is, is the utility of looking at Japanese history. I'm sure there is definite utility there, right? About understanding Japanese actions today. But like World War II and the, and the, the MacArthur shogunate or whatever we're supposed to call it really is a major punctuation mark in, in Japanese history. And you can only learn so much. You can make only make so many predictions about future Japanese behavior based upon, you know, Japanese pre-World War II history. It feels like understand. So I, I guess part of the question is in countries that have um, authoritarian regimes where um, particularly ones and the history of particularly of Russia's authoritarianism going back to the earliest czars being kind of unique in really uh, undermining concepts of civil society, right? This whole, um, the absolutism, absolutism of, of the Russian czar where the czar actually owns the whole country. You know, that's not what you had in most of Western Europe. You don't own it, right? And the way you could 
take nobles and put them in different regions as basically colonial governors of your own holdings. You could remove nobles from land. It's very much like the oligarchs. You have to work with the with Putin's permission or whatnot. It just seems like the that the the predictive power of history is much stronger for authoritarian regimes um, because there's less of a, you know, uh, you know, in, in rich ecosystems, you have trees have roots that keep the soil in and provide habitat and all this kind of stuff. Uh, it's much when, when you have authoritarian regimes, civil, the ecosystems of civil society are kind of pulled away and it becomes very easy for the personalist rulers of countries to see themselves in this grand narrative of, of their country's history. And that's one of the things that makes the route, the past more relevant for personalist dictators than it does for uh, pluralistic societies where you have people who have to actually get buy-in from other stakeholders. Does that make sense? I mean, I'm just trying to think it through about why this is, why, why, why the past is more predictive for authoritarian regimes, it seems to me, than it is for pluralistic regimes. Yeah, it, that, that's an interesting point. And so, you know, you could, you could take another whack at it by looking at China under Xi Jinping, right? And, and so Xi Jinping appears to have decided that his own legacy is thoroughly wound up with this quest for China's rejuvenation. And so he is increasingly harnessing Chinese foreign policy and domestic policy to his particular vision of China's historical trajectory and how he fits in with that, right? Which might, which might be a way of kind of uh, agreeing with what you're saying, I suppose. But, but I, I guess it, it may be that in democratic societies, the work that history does, the predictive work that history does is just more implicit or it's, it's not as foregrounded because, you know, I, I think that there are patterns of American foreign policy that are, you know, deeply ingrained in what you might call strategic or strategic culture, even though they are not as closely associated with a particular leader, and even though leaders are not as free to kind of chart their own course as they may be in autocratic societies. And so there, you know, there's a reason that the United States continually finds itself at odds with the most powerful autocratic countries in the international system, which is because we, we believe at some level that ultimately their vision of domestic order gives them a vision of international order that we are not going to be comfortable with over, over time, right? And that, that is a very steady theme in U.S. policy going back a long way. Now, there are also these punctuation points in American history where you, you wouldn't get a whole lot of predictive power out of looking at certain aspects of U.S. foreign policy during the 19th century and then trying to figure out what the U.S. would do in 1981 because there was this, this big disjuncture in American history, the Great Depression and World War II, that kind of alters American strategic culture in, in a significant way. So I, I don't know that I have kind of a definitive answer for the question of, of whether the past is more predictive in one set of regimes than, than another. But if you, if you look at kind of the most powerful autocratic states in the system today, you can certainly see the ways in which narratives about Russian or Chinese history and how they intersect with narratives about a particular ruler's greatness are doing a lot of the work in driving their foreign policies. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... 
Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. We must have talked about this previously when you were on here because I basically subject every foreign policy egghead I have on here to this basic thing. And I can't remember what your answer was. I apologize in advance. But, um, you know, my, my standard line for 25 years now has been that uh, a foreign policy realist is an ideologue who's lost an argument. Um, and I'm not saying that being realistic is bad. Realistic is important. It's the essence of all good policy. Understanding reality as it exists, that's all good. I'm not saying we should put on blinders and ignore the facts on the ground. That's all important and vital. But foreign policy realism which works on this idea that you that that basically the nature of rulers doesn't matter that that's the the inherent interests of the state that went out and all that kind of stuff i would and i'm confessing my priors i have a lot of hostility towards foreign policy realism um in part because of the stuff that you were talking about before about how america despite one one administration or another one party or another being in charge we we just kind of don't like authoritarian countries and it comes out in our foreign policy. And it doesn't mean necessarily we go to war with every authoritarian country. We don't. But uh, we're never going to be buddies with unfree countries the way we are with free countries. And, um, and, the, and I think that's right and good because your principles should inform your policies. Um, and so it seems to me that the, the, realist, the realist point of view um, I understand realists have done a lot of heavy lifting trying to explain to 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 uh, justify, explain away, um, uh, legitimize Russian behavior for a very very long time. But how in God's green earth can can a realist look at what Putin has done and say? Oh yeah, this was just totally in Russia's interest. They had no choice but to do this, right? I mean, isn't it time to sort of put realism away as a, as a serious vision for how countries behave? Yeah, I, I'm in the amen chorus on on this one. I've long been a bit puzzled by the hold that realism, or particularly um, a, a particular type of realism, kind of the def- defensive structural realism, that the hold that it seems to have on parts of the academic uh, community. I mean. The whole idea of realism, as as we you mentioned Bob Kagan earlier, you know, Bob has pointed out, realism is based on kind of this weird premise that states have interests that are somehow separate from the interests of the regimes and the people that make up those states, which which doesn't make a whole lot of sense when you think about it. And there actually is an ideological underpinning to that, which is that it was sort of the thing that we forced ourselves to believe after the 30 years war as a way of trying to create a system where you could have states that were uh, content to sort of live and let live when it came to how other states managed their people and take, you know, carte blanche to manage their people as, as they saw fit. And it just doesn't explain a lot about how regime type, you know, to use the word that political scientists would use, influences foreign policy, right? And, and so, you know, why was the Chinese Communist Party always so threatened by the United States and by the international system the United States 
set up, even at times we now know when outwardly the relationship was pretty good in the 1990s or 2000s, well, it's because they understood that the liberal norms of a system run by a democratic superpower were ultimately going to be uh, corrosive and potentially fatal to the illiberal norms of the domestic system that they ran and, and so on and so forth. The other, the other thing I think that um, realism misses, particularly in talking about Russian behavior over the past 30 years, is the strange fact that um, while the Russians never liked the expansion of NATO into Eastern Europe, from a pure security perspective, NATO expansion made Russia safer than it had ever been in the modern era. Because what NATO, NATO expansion solved the two problems that had bedeviled Russian and Soviet leaders for a long, long time. It basically wrapped Germany in a strategic cocoon of liberal democracies. And so the German problem was solved from a Russian perspective. And it pacified Eastern Europe, which was the region through which instability and armies marauding their way to Moscow had passed for, you know, decades or, or for centuries. And so if you just ask the question, like, was Russia safer from invasion in 2007 than it had been in 1941 or 1914 or 1812? Like, of course it was safer from invasion than it had been. So then wh why didn't the Russian regime like NATO expansion, right? Why couldn't why couldn't they accurately perceive their that their interests should lead them to like NATO expansion? I think there's there's two factors. One is that you know states don't just want security, right? And this is where structural realism and defensive realism particularly goes wrong. They want glory. They want the greatness of empire. They want prestige. And and Putin very well understood that NATO expansion was foreclosing that opportunity for Russia in its near abroad. And what states also want, or what rulers want, really, is security for themselves, right? Not so much for their countries, but for themselves, right? And so it's quite clear that Putin worried about the precedent that a democratic Western-leaning Ukraine or a democratic Western-leaning Georgia might set for Russia itself, right? If Russian speakers in Ukraine could have decent government, if they could have a strong relationship with the EU and the West. Well, why couldn't Russian speakers in Russia have that, that too, right? There's this continual fear of ideological contagion coming from pro-Western liberal states on Russia's borders. And you can get a long way of explaining, you know, why Putin has felt so threatened by the post-Cold War march of U.S. foreign policy by looking at these issues, which really don't have a lot to do with kind of security in the traditional sense. That's a really interesting point about the uh NATO made Russia safer. I hadn't really thought about it in those terms, but once you, once you explain it, it's kind of obvious, right? I mean, just NATO is by date is a stabilizing force in Europe. And, um, you know, I mean, Hungary is kind of, kind of maverick these days, but it's not going to do anything that jeopardizes its membership in NATO or the EU. And, and, um, and also, I mean, the sort of, they, they, they gave the game away a little bit when they just didn't really give much of a rat's ass about Finland joining NATO, you know, which has shares what an 800 mile border with, with Russia. And, and I know ultimately Finland lost, but like Finland really gave a pasting to the, to the Soviet union back in the day. And then, and then, and wars prior with Russia. Um, so I, I, I just don't know enough. I, you know, I love intellectual history, but I don't know enough about the origins of 
the realist argument, it always seemed to me that there was a kind of vestigial uh, family resemblance to sort of Marxist arguments, which is that, you know, class interests, the scientific unfolding of history, that these things are objective material facts of historical development, that individual personalities and great leaders and great men, these things are all sort of distractions and you have to look at underlying things. And that's where this idea of where I always assumed, I don't know this. That's where I always assumed this idea of state interests winning out came from because it was this sort of dialectical materialist kind of argument. Am I, is that just something I just always assumed one way or the other? And it's not true. I mean, there's a certain, similarity with with any kind of structural argument i i suppose one book that is really good on this is a book by jonathan kirshner um up at uh, uh boston college uh, i believe it's called an unwritten future and it's a basic it's basically about how realism has changed over either the past 100 years or the past 2500 years depending on on your perspective and whether you want to go all the way back to thucydides but the point that that he makes which i think is actually correct is that classical realism brought in a lot of the dimensions that you and I have talked about, right? It talked about, you know, motives of honor, motives of fear, right? A lot of the things that you understand drives human behavior on a day-to-day basis. Um, And a lot of that stuff kind of got stripped out of realism after World War II and during the Cold War in particular. And I, I think there are complicated reasons for that um you know structural realism really got moving after the vietnam war and its close cousin defensive realism really got moving after the vietnam war where a lot of what you know academic political scientists were looking for was an answer to the question of like how how could the united states have blundered so badly in getting into vietnam a conflict that did not seem to serve its interests and um, what was a school of thought, frankly, that could be used to kind of restrain the United States from doing stupid things in in the future. The other interesting um, note about realism is that even realists have had a hard time explaining the United States, right? And so, so if you look at the work that leading realists have done to try to explain U.S. foreign policy it often defaults into this very strange space where it says that like, look, the world works according to realism, but not in America because America does things that conflict with my preferences for U.S. foreign policy and my understanding of how the world works. So there must be something else going on here. And that something else um, is typically like a conspiracy theory of what drives U.S. foreign policy. So maybe it's the Israel lobby that drives U.S. foreign policy. Maybe it's the blob that drives U.S. foreign policy, right? Maybe it's sort of this ideological compulsion that drives U.S. foreign policy. But because realism seems to hit a dead end in explaining how the United States behaves, you you find people contorting themselves a little bit to provide an explanation that shows how U.S. foreign policy has been hijacked by somebody or something, but the broader paradigm remains. Yeah, which again, to me, again, maybe it's only metaphorical. But the, para, the, 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 the similarities to some forms of Marxist argumentation, which is that there must be entrenched interests that are contrary to the good of the greater society that are 
thwarting the natural progression and unfolding of, of, you know, historical consciousness raising or whatever the thing is. Right. And so the Mearsheimer stuff and all that, you know, it's, it's, it's all nations should be realist. All most nations are realist. America is not. So there must be someone behind the curtain making it that way. And, and they're both quasi scientific arguments. So they purport to be quasi scientific arguments. Right? right. Which to me has always been a something of a, uh, a way to borrow of it's, a, it's, it's the logical fallacy of the appeal to authority. You know, it's sort of like Hayek stuff about scientism. You, if you, if sort of like Bill Murray in, 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 in Ghostbusters back off, man, I'm a scientist, right? He's like, Oh, well, it's scientific. It must be true then, you know, cause you say so. Um, all right. So just very quickly, I know we're running out of time, but, um, um, back to America stuff. We are, uh, I think there's a vote today on the debt ceiling stuff, which is no way to run a railroad and we don't, we can keep out the punditry, but, um, I'm very much in the camp of, uh, we need to make a lot more stuff that blows up and that or move stuff to positions to blow stuff up. And, um, I don't, and it seems to me the deterrence is much, much cheaper than learning the lessons of failures of deterrence. Right. Um, uh, do you have much hope that, you know, the, that defense spending will go to where it needs to be at some point in the near future without having to first learn some really bad lessons? So, so based just on the contours of the deal, no, right? Because the, the deal is basically going to cap. So defense spending is going to get, I think, a 3.3% bump from FY 23 to 24, and then a 1% bump from 24 to 25. But those are in nominal dollars, right? So in inflation adjusted dollars, we're talking about cuts in defense spending over the next two years, which, which makes absolutely no sense, given that any senior U.S. military leader you talk to will tell you that the danger of not just sort of like abstract competition, but no kidding war with China is growing as we get closer to the end of this decade. Now, you know, let, let's see what happens, right? Because I, I think there is a general consensus in, in Washington and in Congress that defense spending is going to need to rise. And so, um, I wouldn't be shocked if there's some move in the next, uh, you know, whether it's the next three months or the next year or whatever, to, to basically get some increment in defense spending above the caps in this deal, which will probably have to be coupled with some increment in non-defense discretionary and, and so on and so forth. Now, but that won't, you know, then we're still, we're still talking about very marginal increases, right? And so there's a huge gap between sort of the analytical urgency with which we seem to view the Taiwan problem and the China problem and the problem of growing great power tensions in general, and then kind of the programmatic or budgetary urgency with which we are treating it. And, and I think, you know, if we really think that, you know, deterrence is important and that we are potentially headed for a major blow up between the two most powerful countries in the world in the next five to 10 years, we should be treating this much more like a national security emergency and, and figuring out how we spend what we need to spend to get ourselves in a position where we can make an invasion of Taiwan or any other Chinese adventure just look like it's going to end really, really poorly for, for Xi Jinping. And I do not think we are doing that right now. My eyes roll every time I hear waste, fraud, and abuse. 
not because I don't think there's waste, fraud, and abuse. It's just, it's a way to dodge out of making serious decisions about reform and, and entitlement spending and all these kinds of things. At the same time, you look at how the Ukrainians are being, because necessity is the mother of invention, incredibly inventive in figuring out how to solve problems on a shoestring, sort of the way the Israelis used to be just like these amazingly, you know, they were just MacGyver stuff because they couldn't do otherwise. Um, is there a chance? Of, cause I, again, I, I have a higher tolerance for no, I never have a tolerance for fraud, but, or abuse, but waste is sort of inimical, inevitable at massive scale. Right. Um, to some degree or another, but is there in your mind a possibility that we could actually reorganize, um, or rejigger or reform or some other word that begins with re, uh, the way we do the Pentagon and our defense procurement that could get us literally more bang for the buck? We could certainly do more in terms of making it easier to get, you know, take something from sort of like a prototype to production on a scale that would allow it to make a difference on the battlefield. So we have an acquisitions uh, and procurement system that's basically optimized for making small numbers of like super expensive, super exquisite things that take 20 years to build, which is, which is fine for peacetime, fine when you have, you know, an unchallenged lead over any potential rival works less well when you potentially need to go fast to bring new capabilities online works less well when a lot of the technologies that you need to exploit actually originate in the private sector and you got to figure out ways of harnessing them, which is, which is different than it was during uh, the cold war. And, and certainly it works less well. If you're thinking about like, how do I replace stuff that gets blown up or expended in a war quickly where I don't have 20 years to do it? You know, I don't even have 20 weeks uh, to do it. And, and so you, you could change, you know, acquisitions, procedures, and regulations to incentivize the sort of um, models of behavior that we, we want there. But in general, you know, a lot of this does come down to a question of, of money. Yes, you can always try to wring waste, fraud, and abuse out of the system. But you got to understand, I mean, there, there's not an unlimited supply there's not like a line item in the Pentagon budget for waste, fraud, and abuse that you can <laughs> right. just zero out, right? It's, it's a big bureaucracy. Like the, these things happen to a certain extent. And so the question is, how, how do you mitigate that to the extent possible while also making sure you have the resources to procure what you need? And if you think about munitions, for instance, right, we're, we're talking about all of these efforts so that we can buy uh, more long-range missiles and, you know, replace the javelins that we've given to Ukraine and, and so on and so forth. If you want, you know, arms manufacturers to use an old fashioned term for it, to expand production and open up new production lines, well, you got to give them some guarantee that those things are going to be useful for more than six months from now. Right. And so you need longer term contracts, you need bigger buys and, and so on and so forth. You need to create more resiliency in the defense industrial base. And a lot of that does ultimately come down to the scale and the predictability of funding. No, that makes total sense to me. Um... I wanted to get you out of here on time. Um, I've been, I've been a, a wastrel with other people's time of late. Uh, so uh, Hal Brands, thank you so much for doing this and hope to have you back soon. Thanks, Jonah. Great talking to you. Okay. So uh, Hal Brands has left the studio. Um, always great to talk to him. Uh, you know, we covered a lot of stuff. I had a lot more stuff um, I could get into, but I, I didn't want to repeat of the 
um, the 90 minute Dave Bonson episode um, where I'm already getting grief in the comments for, even though I really enjoyed that conversation. Um, what else is say? Oh, you should tune in and listen to, I think it's going to go out as a podcast any moment now. Uh, I hosted dispatch live uh, last night and uh, my wife's uh, instant response uh, review of it was, that it was good, but I should never host again because I am too dark and dyspeptic and you need somebody um, with more, um, uh, more upbeat. Um, in, in fairness to me, I think by 8 o'clock at night, I'm usually dark and dyspeptic and there's no getting around that. Um, and she was like, you should hide it better that you dislike hosting uh, the Dispatch podcast and uh, the Dispatch Live uh, thing, and, which I probably should have. Uh, but I had a fun talk, lots of punditry with um, Audrey Felberg and Andrew Egger. And then we did a, I did a half hour, um, because I was too upbeat. Um, we had, uh, Kevin Williamson on to really bring things down to a subterranean level of, of what John Podorts would call crushing morosity. Um, and he talked about, I have to say what I think was uh, one of the best, not the best piece you've ever run on the dispatch, uh, which was his diarist from Ukraine. Um, it's really a wonderful piece. I highly recommend that you read it. Um, it's called burial of the dead. It's his wonderland, um, uh, newsletter. And, um, and maybe it'll, uh, prompt some of you to become, uh, uh, subscribers to the dispatch. And, um, other than that, uh, I got nada. So, um, I will, uh, I'll see you on the solo and I will, uh, see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. 